Oh, good morning, friends. Very good to see you. Praise the Lord that we have a place to meet and we have people who gather. Even when that shot rang out from the speaker there, I live in the Vine, Vineland area, grapes everywhere, means birds, and they have these air cannons that go off all day, every day, hundreds and hundreds of times. It's like the civil war has broken out in our area. You could shoot people in our area and no one would know because you hear in a given hour maybe 200 of these things going off. Uh, The birds don't like them, we don't like them, but it appears the grapes like them, so they allow them on. Well, friends, it's good to be here and we trust the Lord will indeed meet with us as we gather around his word. We're going to continue in our study in 2 Peter. Uh, we've been doing that over the last, uh, the last few months. And chapter 2 is all about false teachers. And we're going to look at it in at least two messages, maybe three. We'll see how things unfold. But today we're going to be focusing just on the first 10 verses in chapter 2. Perhaps you've heard the expression, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And sometimes we can feel that the age in which we live is like the worst age ever. No one has ever had to deal with things the way we've had to deal with them in terms of corrupt morality and spirituality. Because today we're confronted with so many teachers who bring lies on so many fronts that it seems truth has been expunged from the land and that our society has in some ways completely lost its sanity. We face false teachers in every avenue of life. We get them in education. We get them in science. We get them in psychology and economics. Get them in the weather. Get them in the church. Where they look to apply guilt and judgment anywhere a person might resist or offer an alternate perspective or an alternate point of view. We have to understand that we're not the first generation to face such things. Though there may be some unique elements to our time, the basic elements of opposition that we face, especially in the world of false teaching, has been with the church from the very beginning. So first in verses 1 through 3, we're going to take a look at the historic reality of false teachers. Let me just read those verses again. So Peter says this, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So we're going to look at this under two main areas of focus, these verses. Now, number one, where there is truth, there will be lies to oppose it. It can be guaranteed, especially when it comes to truth that arises in Scripture, there will be opposition and lies to oppose it. False teachers, these are individuals who present lies as the truth, or they take the truth And they massage it or manipulate it to make it less than the truth that it really is. And these individuals have been a plague to God's people throughout history. The false teachings presented in opposition to the revealed word of God have one purpose, and that is to undermine the word of God. And we know where false teaching began. 
we know that the first lie uh, was with Satan. And when he's asked the question, he says, has God really said? Implying that can you really trust what God told you? And the word of God immediately begins to be twisted and to be misapplied and to be misunderstood. And we understand the consequences that came from that. Well, Peter understands this, and he reminds his readers that these false teachers, they've been the source of these cleverly devised myths that he's talked about elsewhere in his letters. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 16. These are individuals who proclaim, thus says the Lord, when in fact the Lord said no such thing. It's no different in the New Testament era than in the Old. Jesus warned of false prophets. Uh, Matthew 24, 11, he says this, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. That's the real tragedy in false prophets and their teachings, is that they lead people astray. And we know what the Lord says about those who lead one of his little ones astray. He makes that comment. He said, it would be better if a millstone were tied around their necks and they were tossed into the depths of the sea. Leading children astray, leading God's people astray, is a serious, serious affront to God. John warned of false prophets in 1 John 4.1. He says, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. So false prophets are a reality. Peter reiterates that warning. Just as there have been false prophets in the past, he said there will be false prophets in his day, and he warns us that there will be false prophets, false teachers in our day. And so we're warned and we're to be on the lookout. Satan has been at war with God ever since his rebellion in heaven. He's the master of lies. He's the king of misdirection. He's the, he's the champion of truth twisting. Not always denying, just altering. Shaving some of the truth off so ultimately you end up with a half-truth which is not the truth at all. And he's the source of power for many false teachers who expound these clever, well-disguised lies in an effort to undermine the word, the word of God. If someone is new to the Christian walk, sometimes it doesn't take much to misdirect them. And so superficial things are presented and they're successful. For those who have been on the Christian walk for a long time, the lies have to become more clever. They have to become more devious. But Satan is looking to send in his false teachers who don't initially look or sound like false teachers. Many false teachers arise from within the church. They're the ones that are the most difficult. Those are the ones who can cause the greatest damage. They slip in among the flock in disguise. We hear about sheep, wolves in sheep's clothing. They use false pretense and claim that their only goal is to help believers walk more closely with God. In fact, uh, the teachings they bring, at the very least, are heretical. And these are ones that proclaim a lie about God to be the truth. So we have this historic element to false teachers. They're not new to our age. They have been with us since the beginning of creation. Well, secondly, in these verses, we need to see the damaging consequences of presenting false as true. Presenting false as true, especially when people do it in the name of the Lord. Now, in his mercy, God has given us revelation regarding all essential spiritual matters. And in the Old Testament, it was primarily through individuals that he selected and he spoke through them. Hebrews 1.1 tells us that, where we read long ago at many times and in various ways, God spoke to our fathers 
by the prophets. Individuals who would say, thus says the Lord. This is what the Lord says, and he would speak through them. But at the same time, false prophets arose who spoke from their own heart and claimed it was from the Lord. Uh, Ezekiel 13. Uh, Ezekiel here speaking of judgment that's come upon Israel and Judah. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 8 to point out the seriousness of false prophets. Ezekiel says this, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets have been like jackals among ruins, O Israel. You've not gone up into the breaches or built up a wall for the house of Israel that it might stand in battle in the day of the Lord. They have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord when the Lord has not sent them, and yet they expect him to fulfill their word. Have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination whenever you have said, declares the Lord, although I have not spoken? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have uttered falsehood and seen lying visions, therefore, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord. It's quite the serious consequence for declaring things in the name of the Lord that he has not declared. Because instead of having God as an ally, you have God as an opponent. God has said, no, I oppose these people. And when God opposes, God will restrict and God will ultimately cast them down. So false teachers, even though they arise in all ages, they will always face ultimately the opposition of God. And eventually, if there's no turning in faith to Christ, ultimately there'll be destruction. Their goal always is to introduce heresies and false words that lead to things, that lead to, Peter tells us here, leads to exploitation and leads to the destruction of those who are seeking to follow the Lord. And they do so because they're greedy. They're greedy for gain, for what it is they can obtain, what it is they can get from Christians. In verse 14, which would be in a, a little farther down from our passage, uh, Peter says, they have hearts trained for greed. That's what they're after. Um, I think of some of those who have pursued the health and wealth gospel. I think if you look at the highest paid pastors in the world, Carl is not among them. I want you to know that. He's close, but he's not quite there. Uh, But out of the top ten, I think four or five are from Nigeria. One of the poorest nations. And yet they have these wealthy pastors who say, you give to me, and the more you give, the more God will bless you. And people give because they're desperate. Uh, that's a false teaching. And these individuals will be opposed by God in this life and in the life to come. So these are individuals of hearts trained for greed. They want material wealth. And to gain it, they will even deny some aspect of the Lord Jesus Christ and his ministry. They need to maintain enough of it to be able to stay disguised, to be able to be devious. You can't reveal yourself completely, but there will always be clues. There will always be something in their teaching where they deny some aspect of the ministry or the work or the personhood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And whatever it is they present, their goal ultimately is to undermine a believer's faith, underline a believer's trust and cause them to stumble. And then ultimately bring about a misrepresentation of the gospel. People will say, that's the gospel? 
That's, that's, that's what it's all about. It's all about material gain. It's all about wealth and health. People realize there's an emptiness to that, and they turn away from it. And it seems to indicate that certainly some of these teachers, many of these teachers, once claimed to be Christians. They once walked among them, but have fallen away. Their ultimate denial of the master indicates it was a false profession. I mean, Paul talks about some of those people who were workers of his, but they've gone to the world. They've chased after the world, and they've turned away from their initial goal of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. But having that disguise, it's just exactly what they need in order to infiltrate and to spy out and to find those who are weakest, to find those who are most vulnerable and to prey upon them. So they do. There's just no, there's no heart. There's no compassion. It's all about their own greed. So even as they seek the destruction of others, Peter speaks about something that is quite ironic because in their seeking to destroy, ultimately, he says, they bring upon themselves swift destruction. And he says their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. The Lord has his own timetable for things. Sometimes the Lord allows individuals like this to have an impact for long periods of time and seemingly to do damage to his own church. He does so with a purpose to test and to try and to purify uh, the individuals within his own church. But here are these individuals who, in seeking to destroy others, themselves will ultimately face destruction. And we have to take solace in that. We have to be confident that the Lord is going to do that in his time because it doesn't always happen in this life. Sometimes it's not until after death that their judgment comes. Sometimes it is in this life and he will intervene and he will pull these people down and uh, he'll expose them for who they are and the church can be, can be delivered from their influence. So we need to be faithful and leave the timing up to the Lord. Knowing that in his mercy, there may be some of these false teachers ultimately who are saved. Remember Paul and his breathing out death and condemnation to the church and the Lord saved him and used him in such a marvelous way so we need to be again faithful and confident and trust the fact that the Lord he knows the false teachers we need to watch for them we need to be aware Um, somebody sent me a an article I should read I'm always wary of people who send me articles I say you got to read this and I looked at some of the titles of other articles that were posted on that particular website. I'm never reading the article because they have some of the most ludicrous statements of other things that they're exploring and examining. And I go, no, I think I will just, I will just pass. But people get caught up because they read things that support what they believe. And so they read more of those things and it makes them believe it even more. But there can be this drift, this drift away from the core elements of the gospel into these, these sidelines, these sideshows that we really don't need to be spending our time and our energy and our spiritual efforts on. So false teachers, there we need to watch for them even within the church. Now, it's unfortunate that there will be believers who accept their lies, either in whole or in part, 
And as a result, they may have their testimony damaged. They may have their walk with the Lord severely interrupted. There can be things that will drive a wedge between us and the Lord because we've got our eyes off him and onto something else. This weakens their ability to live as they should. It can be a discouragement and bad example to other believers, especially new believers. And it can hinder unbelievers from accepting the true teachings of the gospel as it's presented because the gospel gets distorted through these teachings. This is why we have so many warnings about being on the lookout for such teachers with the call to expose them. Elsewhere, Paul tells us we have to expose these false teachers and the false teachings uh, for what they really are. So there's a little bit on the history and uh, the damaging consequences of presenting false as true. The worst being that God becomes your opponent and God opposes your efforts. Well, as we come to verses 4 through 10, the second part, we read here of condemnation. It's, I mean, today we're going to be celebrating the Lord's table. And there we celebrate freedom. There we celebrate dead being raised to life. People being found in Christ. It is the exact opposite. When we read these kinds of things, when we read a chapter like this, and we come to the table, oh, we need to start with, thank you, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you for delivering me from these kinds of mindsets and delivering us from this kind of false teaching and bringing us to the truth of the gospel where we can rejoice and remember the Lord's death until he comes. Well, in these verses, Peter gives three examples of God's judgment on those who opposed him. Because we're talking about what happens when God becomes your opponent. Well, he gives us three examples of those who opposed him in terms of judgment, and then one example of mercy. It's one long sentence with four if statements. So I'm going to read through it again, beginning at verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, If, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So the three groups. First of all, he speaks about angels. Angels in verse 4. Now, I need to be careful when I seek to try to grasp and understand all that happened to those angels that sinned against God. It's not clearly laid out in Scripture. There are things we can insinuate. There are things we can understand, we can grasp. But uh, some people get a little too forceful in terms of saying what happened, when it happened, how it happened, why it happened. Uh, Scripture is, in many ways, quite silent on those details. The nature of their sin, obviously, was some sort of rebellion, but the timing and even the nature of their present condition, even just reading here in terms of what it means to be committed to chains of gloomy darkness, to be kept in until uh, a time of judgment. So the question is, are some angels already in hell in these chains of gloomy darkness while others are given some freedom to afflict people in the physical world? I'll leave that for Carl or Roger or someone else to pursue on another day. 
what we need to understand, the key lesson here is an argument from the greater to the lesser. There were angels who became opponents of God. And what was the result? Judgment. That's what came about. These are, these are beings that lived in the very presence of God. These are beings who were created to serve and to worship. I mean, angels there now are singing praises to God. I'd say every moment of every day, but I don't think we have moments and days in heaven. But at all time, the, the, the angels are singing, the, the seraphim and so on. Well, if God didn't spare these beings, if God didn't spare them in their unrighteous work, these are individuals who saw his glory, but he cast them into hell as judgment. Will he not just as surely punish those teachers who lead his children astray? God the Father loves his children. He loves them. He loves us the way he loves Jesus, his son. And he will, he will go to every length necessary uh, to secure their eternal good within, within Jesus Christ. So angels were not spared. Uh, verse 5, he speaks about the flood. Now this example, there's not just judgment, but there's also deliverance. There's judgment and deliverance. There was no deliverance in terms of the angels. It was judgment on those who were guilty. And here we have some who ultimately are delivered. The ancient world of Genesis 6 was a wicked and corrupt place. We believe we live in a wicked and corrupt time. Well, here's Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is one powerful statement. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Well, we look around and ask, wow, does that sound familiar? Well, certainly to some degree it does, because we see evidence of this in our particular uh, point in history. Well, this was an ungodly world, and God did not spare it. He didn't. Um, we went down to the Light and Sound Show, is that what it's called, down in the States, uh, where they put on the massive productions of, of well, we went with Jonah, um, Joseph. We went and saw um, Noah. And I tell you the most impactful part of that entire production, because they had animals on the stage. It's a massive stage and the lights and everything. It was pretty impressive. They closed the door on the, uh, on the ark. And then you hear the rain starting. Then you hear this, people at the boat, at the ark, knocking, wanting to get in. And then you hear the rain build heavier. And you hear people screaming and people crying out. And then after a while, you hear nothing, nothing. It is a powerful moment when God's judgment falls upon a people. That's what happened. In Noah's day, he didn't spare that world. This is a world that knew Noah. This is the world that knew this crazy man who was building this massive boat on dry land. He didn't build it in a harbor. He's just out on dry land building this massive boat, and people would come by and say, what are you doing? And he would explain to them that this judgment is coming, and then they need to repent. They need to come to God. 
And they just laughed. I mean, in the end, there was Noah and seven, just the eight of them in the ark. So over a period of a century, they listened to this herald of righteousness and virtually to no effect whatsoever. And in the end, God spared Noah and the others and all the animals needed to repopulate a new world after the flood. The ungodly world was found guilty and they received just condemnation and ultimate judgment from God. And Peter's saying, so too will false prophets, false prophets, false teachers, including the modern ungodly ones who seek to lead God's people astray. So we've got angels and the ungodly world. And now in the third case, in verses 6 to 8, we have cities. Uh, Peter turns from the deluge that destroyed a world to an event that destroyed two cities, plus perhaps a few little towns that were nearby. And here we have the account of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, Genesis 13.10 says this, And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, we know in their day, and we know from Scripture, that Sodom and Gomorrah were known particularly for their sexual immorality, particularly the sin of homosexuality. It was rampant in this particular, these particular cities. They were well off. These people, I'm sure they had food, they had dwellings, people had jobs, uh, beautiful place to grow crops. It was well watered. It was a beautiful area. And yet the people sexually were, were sinful. The extent and nature of their sin was so grievous that the Lord destri- decided he would destroy the whole area. All the entire area was going to be destroyed in his judgment. And Peter says this was intended for what? As an example. It was judgment on them, but it's also an example throughout all of history. People in the world know about Sodom and Gomorrah. People still joke about Sodom and Gomorrah as if it was something to be laughed about. Uh, when in fact it was, uh, it was a terrible event. But this is what's going to happen to the ungodly, including false teachers both then and now. Now again, in this event, there were only a few survivors. There were only three. Lot and his two daughters. Which again shows God's mercy. But notice Noah, he was delivered through going into the ark. Lot, he had to be rescued took the angels everything they had to get him out of the city, to get him out of the city in time. And he had every excuse and every reason. He was trying to hold back. He didn't want to go. And then where they wanted him to go, he didn't want to go there. He said, let's go to this little town over here. So Noah willingly submitted to God's command. He did. And yet, um, Lot, he had to be dragged from the city. He had to be rescued. But notice here, Peter uses the word righteous three times for Lot. Right? He may not have been the most courageous. He may not have been the most balanced of individuals. He had trouble with alcohol. It led to incest with his daughters. I mean, he was far, far from the ideal father, the ideal husband, even the ideal neighbor. But why would he be called righteous Lot? Well, even though he chose the plains of the Jordan for economic reasons, and he showed these various moral weaknesses, it seems that he never entered into them. He never approved of them. He was even ready to rebuke them for their actions. And maybe he did at other times. He would talk to neighbors, and and he would say this just isn't right. But remember when the crowd came and the angels were in his house and they wanted 
They wanted her to bring these men out. And uh, he goes out and he tells them, um, don't do this great wickedness. Uh, so he, he spoke with them. He says, Lot went to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, brothers, do not act so wickedly. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. So there, obviously there are things in Lot that God saw that don't always come out in terms of how his character is displayed. But there was a righteousness to the man in terms of the fact that he sought to love God and to serve him. Remember Abraham praying when the angel of the Lord came to him? And he said, Lord, if we find 50 righteous, will you, will you spare the city for that? And the Lord said, yeah, I won't destroy it for the sake of 50. And he works his way down 45 all the way down to 10. Well, who did Abraham have in his mind? I think the only person he had in his mind was Lot and his family. That's who he was thinking about. So in Abraham's mind, he's saying, listen, if you find someone righteous, such as Lot, you know, will you spare the city? Well, he never went past 10, did he? And when it came down to it, it might have just been one. Maybe the daughters, I don't know. We're not told. But maybe just Lot was the only one in the entire city. But God, when he judges, he's thorough. And no one who's guilty will be missed. No one. Well, then we come to verses 9 and 10. We have the conclusion of this particular portion. And it reads this, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So in response to these four if clauses, Peter arrives at two conclusions that he gives us. And we'll close with these. Number one, God is able to preserve and to rescue the godly. See, Peter is one of the apostles, but he's also a pastor. He is like a father. He talks about the people who are reading his letters as his beloved, beloved ones, his beloved children. And he says, if these three illustrations are true, he said, this should bring about some assurance to believers. Because when believers are under persecution, and it doesn't seem anything's happening to the persecutors, or false teachers come in and seem to get into conflict with the true teachers, and nothing seems to happen to them, people can begin to wonder, like, are they wrong? If they were wrong, so wrong in their teaching, wouldn't God just step in and stop them? And the answer to that is not always. So Peter's looking to give the people here some assurance that God is in control of every situation. God sees and God knows. If he's able to deliver Noah and his family from a perverse humanity and rescue Lot and his daughters from a godless society, well, he knows how to deliver Christians from immoral and corrupt people today. He knows. He knows how to deliver. He knows how to rescue. Protecting, preserving, delivering, rescuing, these are all things that God's able to do, and God does on a regular basis. Whether it's in the trial or the form of a temptation, the Lord is able to protect. He's able to keep us from situations that are beyond our capacity to deal with or to overcome at that point in our lives. He's able to deliver. He can show us the door of escape and give us the grace and strength to take it. But then he can also preserve, uh, seeing us through a situation, a difficulty, a challenge, uh, by his grace and by his strength and by his mercy. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, verse 17. He says, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth, 
The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Interesting he could write those kinds of things from a prison. where He says the Lord can rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. He didn't see being in prison as being a difficulty. Provided challenges. He had to arrange things differently than if he could be in different places face to face. But see where his focus is? And bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. So whether it's from a prison or whether it's from a a time in a society when things are going well for the church, he says, regardless, to him be the glory forever and ever. And then lastly, God is able to reserve and judge the ungodly. We've been speaking about that to some extent already. The unrighteous, even in this world, are kept in custody awaiting final judgment. Uh, They may experience aspects of the judgment in this life as they encounter various consequences for their sins, Right? There are things that arise when people bring lies forward and present them as the truth. There can be consequences that society imposes upon them or consequences the church imposes. But especially those who hunger or thirst or are slaves to sexual pleasure. Those are the ones that Peter focuses on here at the very end of this comment. Those that indulge in the lust of defiling passion. And as well, there's spiritual anarchists. They despise authority. Uh, we see the rise of anarchism in our day. People who have decided if the government doesn't do the things I want it to do, if it's not the kind of government I think it should be, then we need to throw it off. We need to overcome it. We need to rise up and rebel. Um, I mean, that's deep in some countries' DNA. I mean, some countries, that's how they came about. I mean, I think of the U.S., came about through throwing off the yoke of what they thought was British imperialism and wrong taxes, and they become a mighty nation, and God has blessed them in many ways. That's what I sense we we see. Well, we need to make sure we don't allow that to happen within the church. We don't allow spiritual anarchists to get a foothold within the church. Those individuals who despise authority, not just despising the authority perhaps of the elders within the church, but the authority of God himself and trying to throw off that authority so that they can have the kind of freedoms that they feel we should have when they're nowhere promised to us in Scripture. Nowhere. I love freedoms I have in Canada. They're not freedoms God guarantees in Scripture anywhere. It's a blessing from him that we enjoy them, and I hope we can continue to enjoy them. But the freedom we pursue is freedom from sin, and bondage, and the influence of the devil and his lies. That's the kind of freedom that we pursue, the freedom to worship and the freedom to serve. So the authority that they despise is that of God's rule over them and anything that has to do with Jesus, anything that has to do with Jesus Christ. They express hatred to Christ through ridicule and contempt when it comes to his people. Well, we can be assured that God takes note of all these things, and his judicial records will be precise on that last day. So, number one, beware of false teachers, especially those who seek to push us even slightly off that tangent of pursuing what we see the gospel clearly teaching. And then trust the Lord to deliver us either from or through the trials, tribulations, the challenges we find in our life. The Lord is with us, and the Lord will see us through, and even as Paul said, bring us safely 
into his heavenly kingdom. I'll praise him for that. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do indeed thank and praise you once again for your word. These are dire warnings you give to us, and we trust we might take them seriously. Not that we might fear, Lord, because you're the one who grants us the courage and the wisdom, the spiritual insight, Lord, to help identify where these false teachers are and what the false teachings are. But Lord, give us the determination to withstand them, to hold fast against them, to expose them where they are, Lord, and those who bring them to us. Lord, within the church, help us to keep our eyes wide open, help us to be watchful. And Lord, I trust that if there are those here today or those that are listening who are yet outside of Christ, all this judgment, all this condemnation that we read about coming to false teachers, it will just as surely come to those who are outside of Christ on that last day. So Lord, we urge those who are yet outside the kingdom, oh, to come to Christ, to believe on him for salvation, to look at him as Lord and Savior, Lord, and to find new life in him who is the light of the world. So, Lord, save the lost even this day. Bring people those last steps. Perhaps they've, they've begun to come. But, oh, Lord, we pray, as they used to say, that they would close with Christ even this day. For your glory and for their eternal good, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.